I'll be reading John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, and you can see this in your pew Bibles on page 1116. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had When they had all enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is God's word. Because I'm not going to preach the Bible, but because I'm going to use the same version as in the, as in the pews. So if you could be turning to, um, or keeping open in front of you, page 1116. Let me, let me say, first of all, thank you again so much. Thank you to Chris for his trust in welcoming me here. I think I'm going to learn from being among you today. It's it's wonderful to, to, um, this could could all sound wrong, it's wonderful to get out of one's own church. I don't mean that. I love being with our church family and you should be here regularly on a Sunday. But what I mean is that I I learn things from other fellowships and when occasionally I have an opportunity to preach elsewhere, I'm always seeing what I can and praying what I can learn. What a beautiful place you live in as well. Um, And uh, I wish I was able to be here for longer to explore it. Well, friends, let's, let's bow our heads and ask God to help us as uh, we look at this passage together. Our gracious God, we thank you so much for this famous story. And we pray today that as we hear our Lord Jesus explain it to us, that we will be in no doubt at all about the significance of this story for us at this true event, this miracle, for what uh, its significance for us today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, I want to direct your attention this morning to John chapter 6. <clears throat> it's, I don't know what um, your pastor has been preaching, how uh, your pastors have been preaching here over the last uh, few months, but Chris was happy for me to open this passage up. It's fascinated me for a while. It it was, of course, a most extraordinary event. Jesus 
crossed the lake, but he was pursued by a great crowd of people. And when he looked up, verse 5, and saw this crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Philip actually lived, uh, he came from Bethsaida, which was near where this happened, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Philip had grown up there, maybe he knew where the nearest uh, supermarket was uh, that they could get some food. Well, Philip's a bit taken aback by this. He said, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. How are we going to manage that? This is an impossible demand. But then Andrew brings this boy who has five small barley loaves, just small loaves, and five small fishes. And the rest is history. Jesus takes what the boy has brought, this tiny little offering, which could have been fitted into a little basket, and he distributes it and feeds this vast crowd, 5,000 men, but women and children as well, so probably more than 5,000. They get to the end of the whole thing, and they've got 12 baskets of leftovers, which they have to clear up. So everybody has had a good feed, a tremendous meal. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before, so no wonder, at the end of the thing, they wanted to make him king by force. We always like politicians who can provide for us. Well, here's somebody who's able to meet needs like nobody else. And it is clearly a miracle on an enormous scale. So understandably, the feeding of the 5,000 <coughs> is one of the best-known Bible episodes. It's recorded, actually, for us in all four of the Gospels, and, in fact, um, we also learn from the other Gospels that Jesus, this was not the only time he fed a large number of people. He also fed 4,000. It's a story that many people have heard, even people who are not actually Christians. But what I want to dig into today is a simple question. What does it actually mean for us today? We know the story, but what's the message? How should it change our lives and people sometimes get into a guessing game at this point. Is it about being generous? You know, the boy shared his food and therefore um, he shared his pat lunch and it multiplied up. Well, it might be about being generous. The only problem is that you and I don't have the Lord Jesus' capacity to make food on this kind of scale in a sense out of nothing. Well, the good news is we don't need to guess. Because John chapter 6 gives us the explanation of the significance of this miracle. In an extended conversation the next day, Jesus, talking to the crowds, explains to them what it's a picture of and how it should change their lives. Most of chapter 6 is an explanation of the meaning of the feeding. And I want to just give you today the highlights of that let me give you, first of all, this meaning. It's about who Jesus is. Verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. Now, the background is the Old Testament, and the prophet was a great spokesman for God they were expecting who would one day come. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, at the end of the desert travels of the people of God, Moses had said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And from then on, they were looking for 
God to send a prophet. It was partly fulfilled through the prophets that he did send, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. But there was always this expectation of a great prophet who would one day come. And the people are saying, here he is. Actually, he kind of reminds them of Moses because Moses also was used by God to give the people food in a wild place out in the wilderness. Remember the manna that came down from heaven. So this points, this miracle points to who Jesus is. In fact, of course, he's more than a prophet. John's gospel tells us he's the very son of God himself. Here he is doing what only the creator of the universe could actually do. And as Jesus feeds the 5,000, this is part of John's evidence that Jesus really is the great prophet who'd come into the world, the hope of all the expectations of the Old Testament, the very son of God himself. I'm sure you know from your regular studies that John's gospel is very much presenting what we might call evidence-based Christianity. At the end of the gospel, he tells us that these things are written. Uh, the, the, the account of these different miracles that Jesus did are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing we may have life in his name. And John loves to set out a case. He uses words like see. Do you know that comes nearly a hundred times in John's gospel? He's emphasizing uh, the fact that these are things that these people saw. He uses words like witness, testimony, verdict. These are words from the law court as he sets out a case for believing in Christ. You sometimes meet people who say, well, uh, it's all a leap of faith. It's all leaping in the dark, becoming a Christian. But John wants us to know it's based on real evidence, and he's recorded the extraordinary things that the Lord Jesus did, as well as the way he fulfills ancient expectations, to point us to the fact that he really is the Son of God. And certainly, certainly, this miracle, I think you will agree with me today, uh, points to Jesus being quite unlike you and me, and having, through God, the power that only God can give, only the creator of the universe can give. So that's the first <clears throat> aspect of the significance of this miracle. It points to who Jesus is. But now, secondly, and this is where you'll need the Bible in front of you, because we're going to travel a little bit beyond the passage that was read, it's about the new life that Jesus offers. The next day, there's this long conversation with the crowd who catch up with him. And in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The miracle is a picture of Jesus feeding us in a deeper way than simply with the bread and the fish giving us a kind of nourishment that will meet our very deepest needs, something which will truly satisfy and nourish. I wonder what the most satisfying meal is you've ever had. For me, one particular meal stands out. Um, I mentioned, as Chris was uh, asking me some questions early on, I like uh, walking in the wilds. I was up in the wilds of Scotland with uh, my brother-in-law, who I sometimes go climbing mountains with, and we'd been camping out for a, a couple of nights, and we'd run out of food. And uh, we, in fact, we just got down to the last bits of the rations. It was my rather miserly expedition planning, which was to blame for this. Anyway, one of the wonderful things about that particular part of Scotland is that every evening a train arrives, a sleeper train arrives, right out in the wilds at a station 1,400 feet above sea level that takes you all the way back to London. 
all, uh, all afternoon we waited at this little platform, nothing else to do, it had been raining, and then the train arrived at the appointed hour, and it had a restaurant car on it, and um, we sat down, we tucked into a meal like no other, haggis, fantastic, strongly recommended and uh, cheesecake and a cheese board, and we ate like savages. Slightly embarrassing, actually, because somebody came up to me and said, are you Alistair Payne from St. Andrew the Great? I said, I am. And he said, oh, I'm one of the students who comes to the church. So, <laughs> and I, I hadn't recognised him out of context. But it was so satisfying. And you may be able to remember meals you've had when you've been deeply satisfied. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. In verse 35... He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, what does he mean? Well, back in verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. See, it's still all this chapter is this picture of bread and food, which the Son of Man will give you. He's talking about eternal life, which he tells us later in the Gospel is knowing God in friendship with him now, which lasts forever. And that is deep, deep nourishment. Because that is what God made us for. You may know the famous words, you will know the famous words of Augustine way back uh, in the 4th century AD. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I can echo that experience and I'm sure you can too. And this eternal life is not simply a new quality of life now, but it goes on beyond the grave. Verse 28, sorry, verses 48 to, uh, to 50. Uh, this is what he says. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. Yet here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. This lovely hearing. Chris talking about uh, Joyce, the lady who'd been a member of this church for half a century and who actually lived for a whole century and uh, has gone to be with Christ in glory. And that will be her experience. Uh, I've noticed as a pastor a tremendous difference between the funeral of a Christian and the person who is not a Christian. Sometimes in England we get people coming because that's a nearby church and they, want, they ask for a funeral it's an opportunity to tell people about Christ but there's no hope in that person's life. But a Christian funeral, there's real hope. Of course there's mourning, of course there are tears but there is great hope and it is based on Christ's ability to give eternal life. Oh, you say, well, this is very far-fetched. I can't picture the life of the world to come and it is difficult to picture but here's somebody who came into history and could do things like this. He could feed people, 5,000 men and everybody else as well, with a few loaves and fishes. The miracle of the provision of this food makes me take him seriously when he says he is the bread of life who can feed us in that way. The miracle of the feeding is evidence for the miracle of the new life. I wonder if you know that deeply and personally. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He gives us the visual aid, and then he gives us the truth that it points to. And then thirdly, this miracle is about how Jesus brings this new life to men and women in the world today. Have a look at verse 51. 
We're only doing highlights of this passage, incidentally, and I commend to you a study of the whole thing. But he said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, that must have sounded very surprising and odd to the people who heard it, because they didn't know how the story ended. We do. We know that our Lord Jesus was pinned to a Roman cross, and he died there for us. And he died, of course, we've already had it anticipated in the memory verse today, haven't we? Isaiah 53, 5. He died that we might be forgiven. He laid down his own life to take the punishment that we deserve for all our wrongdoings, that we might be forgiven. He gave his life so that we might have life. Verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I was reading how in July 1941 at the Auschwitz death camp in Poland, as a reprisal for the escape of a prisoner, uh, a Pole called Francis, and I cannot pronounce his surname, together with nine others, was sentenced to be starved to death in a windowless bunker. In despair, when he received this sentence, he cried out, my wife, my children, because he thought of them, who is going to be husband and father? I'll never see them again. And then hearing that, another Pole called Max Colby stepped out from the ranks and offered to take his place. And the camp commandant agreed, and in two weeks, Max Colby was dead. And Francis lived and was restored to his family. Now, it's very far from a perfect picture of the wonderful truth of the atonement. But it is about one man giving his life for another. And, of course, this is what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. And here he's picking up the idea of the giving of the bread. Not only did he create all that extra food, but he gave it out. And he's saying here, in a sense, just as the bread was given out, I give out my life for you. Verse 51, again, it's so striking. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So the miracle is about who Jesus is. The miracle is about the offer of new life, which he gives. But it's also about how he brought about this new life, the giving of himself as he gives it out. And finally, he tells us that the miracle is about how we can have all this for ourselves. Let me take you to the most shocking of the verses in this passage. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat. They, they were offended. They thought he was completely mad in saying something like this. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Those must have been such shocking words to talk about his flesh and people's need to eat that. But he's making a serious point. We need to receive him into 
our lives. That's the whole point of the food metaphor. That's what you do with food. Imagine I go to the supermarket and you see me on the way back and you're very nosy and you ask what's in the, what's in the bag and I say, well, I've got some bread and uh, I've got some marshmallows and I've got some tins of soup and I've got some, uh, some smelly French cheese. And you might say, well, what are you going to do with that? might be a strange question to ask. And I say, well, actually, the bread is a nice decoration on the shelf. Marshmallows, I'm going to put them into something and make them into a pillow. The tins of soup are going to be bookends on a shelf to keep my books uh, okay. And the smelly French cheese is going to be an air freshener for my house. You would think that's very strange. Because the point of food is it has to be eaten. There is no other point of food, is there? We're looking forward to the church lunch. I'm looking forward to the church lunch later. And uh, I've already seen in the kitchen some folks preparing that, and I'm looking forward to eating it. Now, it's a very important point that Jesus is making, because we can easily think of Jesus, as no doubt many in the crowd did, as a figure to be admired. But he's saying it goes further than that. He needs to be received. You don't get the benefit of the food without actually eating it. Actually, it really shocked the crowd, this. They didn't like it. They were offended by it. And we learned from John that just after Jesus said this, loads of people who had been following Jesus left. Because it's very personal. There was a former prime minister of England. I think it may have been Lord Grey. I'm not sure. Um, Maybe even Lord Melbourne. I don't know. But he famously said, things are come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to interfere with the private life of a man. But Jesus does interfere with our private lives, and he wants us to receive him into us. Why don't you imagine two, two pastors going to a school assembly? I don't know if uh, Chris ever gets to go to school assemblies, but sometimes, or John, sometimes you get asked to do these kind of things. Now, one week, a pastor comes along, and he says, now, children, you need to follow Jesus, and you need to be... Uh, you, you need to put his words into practice and be and be good and um, the head teacher says after us oh thank you very much pastor that was very helpful it'll help the children to behave better and uh, he goes on his way happy next week another pastor comes and he says children you need to receive jesus as your savior and your lord all the head teachers now think this is very evangelical and full-on and strong and difficult but that's what jesus is saying it's not simply a question of respect and following although we should respect must respect jesus and we must follow him. But Jesus is saying, no, you need, to, you need to receive me into your lives. He gave us, as a visual aid, of course, wonderfully, the Lord's Supper, by which we're reminded of our need to receive him. It's a visual aid for a spiritual truth, receiving him spiritually into our lives. This is the difference between religious people who are respectful of Jesus and the real Christian, who is a person who has received Jesus, as Saviour and Lord, into their lives. And he wants us to be in no doubt. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he means you have to receive him into your life as Saviour and Lord. To receive him means saying, I want you to be my Saviour and my Lord. I want you to know you personally as my friend. And Jesus always hears the prayer of the person who asked to receive him into their life. And the Christian life, 
is lived like that. The Christian life, the shape of the Christian life is a daily dependence on the Lord who feeds us. That's what he says here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains or abides in me and I in him. Every day, having received Jesus as Saviour and Lord many years ago, but every day, as I feel, in a sense, empty and inadequate, I cast my cares on Jesus and I ask him that I may receive his help and the daily blessing of his Spirit living within. So as we conclude, do you see the meaning of the feeding? First of all, it is evidence, <clears throat> along, with <clears throat> along with other things in John's Gospel, that he really is the Son of God. Secondly, as he miraculously feeds the crowd, he's pointing to a supernatural way in which he can feed us with eternal life, the life that God made us to know, knowing him forever. Third, as he gives out the bread, as he distributes it, it's pointing to the self-giving that he did for us on the cross, his giving of himself, which is what makes it possible for us to have the eternal life. And finally, as the crowd receive it and eat it and enjoy the bread and the fish, well then, it's a picture of what Jesus wants each of us to do personally with him today. He's calling all through this for a response. Philip is challenged. Will you believe this? And he learns that he can. He tells us that the work of God uh, to work for this eternal life is to believe in the one that God has sent. In verse 50, he tells us that anyone may eat of this bread and not die. And verse 53, he tells us we must receive him. That's the response he wants from each of us to this great miracle. Shall we pray together? We thank you, Lord, for this remarkable miracle, and we thank you that you don't expect us to trust you based on a leap in the dark, but you give us evidence to go on. And thank you that this miracle of the feeding has a meaning for us. Please help each of us to find this eternal life by receiving you into our lives. Thank you that you gave your life, that we might have life. Amen.